Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Mulatala. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Paulette Bahatch. Paulette is an author, a journalist, and a writing coach who loves to share her knowledge and her expertise with those who are pursuing writing, both as a career or for personal creative goals. Paulette, along with the novelist April Davila, who was also a guest on the podcast earlier this year, co-created a virtual space for writers during the pandemic called A Very Important Meeting, which is where I met her. And in this wonderful virtual writing space, they offer the participants a mindfulness meditation and a 45 minutes focused writing session with the wonderful option to get support for their writing projects from the hosts who are all accomplished writers themselves. In this interview, Paulette shares her own journey with writing, how one of her stories went viral, what it's like to juggle creative pursuits and a day job, and plenty more, which makes for a very joyful, honest, and exciting interview. So I am really delighted to share my conversation with Paulette Bahatch. Happy listening. Paulette, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to Out of the Clouds. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. You have like the best podcasting voice in the world. So you make <laughs> me want to work on mine. Mine's a little shrill. Well, you, you do know I used to be a singer. So I have explored the microphone <laughs> before the podcasting. I'm a kitchen and shower and car singer. I love singing. It was not for consumption of other people. <laughs> <laughs> Yet. Um. So I wanted to um, start, as I do with most interviews, with asking you to tell me your story and pick up wherever you want. I am a creative writer who is doing all the things, trying to make it all work, probably doing too much, and nearing 40 and really thinking about honing in and creating the life that I really, really want based on this foundation of what I've been doing and recognizing how far I've come and, and really aligning what I originally envisioned for my life, which was, I want to be a magazine writer who's getting sent all over the world to do incredible stories. And then in my lifetime, everything has changed so much about magazines, about newspapers, about I mean, the world, right? And the internet was not a thing when I was born in uh, 1982, back in the late last century. And so I do, my creative outlets are really writing and entrepreneurship. And I love that entrepreneurship can be a creative outlet and I've really, really enjoyed it. And as well as other things like photography and design and cooking. So just trying to live in the space of um, my favorite Rumi quote, which is, may the beauty we love be what we do. And the beauty I love is not scrolling on Twitter, although that is what I do often, but trying to have as much time in that space of belting as loud as I can while chopping up some beautiful peppers 
and waiting for a friend to knock on my door and yeah, finding as much time in that space as possible and feeling the way I felt when I read uh, Lauren Groff's Matrix last weekend, just like, oh, just re-falling in love with how good writing can be. Yeah, thanks. I, I really hear you. Sometimes I think that when I was a kid and I fell in love with reading, um, one of the things that I realized probably more as a teenager than, than as a child was how beautiful words can be. And when that hits you, you know how you need to say it out loud, even if you're on your own, you need to read them aloud. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a pleasure I, I like to reconnect with regularly. Yeah. You're like, what is that? Iambic pentameter or something? What's, what's the mysterious magic behind this? Why does that sound so good? How do I? And then, of course, with writers, how do I make my writing sound that good? And how do I wield this magic? So tell me, how old were you when you chose writing as a career? Oh, did writing choose you? I was 10 years old at the bus stop with my two best friends who are still my two best friends. And I said, I want to be a writer when I grow up. And my one best friend said, do you have any idea how hard that is? And she was so right. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, so I started out, I mean, literally like middle school yearbook. How did that go? You know, it was, there's so much about dividing the line part of my life challenge is doing things for, to be special and to get attention and doing things because they're of service to people. Right. I have, there's a a video exists of my whole family, cousins and everything, tons of kids on the floor, Christmas morning, opening presents, right. It's crazy loud in there. And then there's me And I get a candy cane on one of my presents and I just whip around looking for someone to tell. And just my shrill little voice over the din goes, I got a candy cane in my present. And it's like, who cares, kids? So when you're like a middle school yearbook, you're like, I want my name on the page. Like, I want to be special. I want to be the writer. And uh, so I, whenever I feel like I'm just doing something for attention or to be special, I call it candy caning. And I'm like, okay, you're candy caning. Like, let's bring it back to like, How can you serve the reader, you know, and honor yourself and love yourself, but not be like, I need to be special to be okay as a person, you know, which has been a long time struggle. And I think it's something that most of us can recognize or acknowledge exists in our lives as well, for sure. Yeah. I'm the youngest and I was a total daddy's girl who was not spoiled too much financially, but definitely spoiled with like love undeservedly. So I would like came out of the world. I'm like, I'm cute. Everything's going to be great. I'm the protagonist, right? And the earth is like, no, please shut up. (laughs) Well, depends on how you tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. When I did Peace Corps, that was very good for me. That was a very needed ass whooping by the world. And that really was my, a big part of my origin story, how I came out into the world. Yeah. Tell me about that. So how did you come to get into the Peace Corps? And can you explain it for people who are not from your neck of the world? Yeah. So when you say Peace Corps in the United States, people envision you living in a hut and you're like this, you know, like 
traditionally, although this is coming under more scrutiny, you know, you are this like very good person. Actually, there's a, a movie where this, uh, the character can only see someone's like insides, right. And their insides look like they're outsides and all the Peace Corps volunteers are like beautiful people inside. Right. Which, yeah, not necessarily true. And so I had always wanted to travel and never had money in college. A big part of my story is the financial chaos of my family. We went, my family went bankrupt when I was eight. And then when we were finally starting to get our footing, when I was 17, my dad was killed in an accident at work. And so that was like just a total chaos disaster. And so I was 25 and I was doing newspapers, but I was like, I was a small town reporter and I was like, something is like, like not quite right about this. And the recession was coming on, like things were getting bad and things were getting bad in newspapers. And I was like, this is a good time for me to like try to do Peace Corps. I also like had a lot of problems with anxiety not so much depression, but like, I mean, anxiety just kind of sucks. So like, is that depression or is it just anxiety sucking? And I was also undiagnosed ADHD. So I was like, I just wanted to like kick myself out of my life. I'm like, let me go like do something big, be of service to people. And for example, when I got my country where you go and you volunteer for two years and you, your salary is about $2,000. And, um, so I got Paraguay. I knew I was going to go to South America and I got Paraguay and I was like, I was like, I wanted mountains. I wanted beaches. And I was like, you can, uh, you can request a country change. And I almost wanted to, because I'm like, this is not a very, you know, there wasn't Instagram at the time, but like the, the mode was like, well, this is not a very Instagrammable country. <laughs> okay. And then I was like, no, I was like, you are going to serve others and you're going where you're needed. So you're going to Paraguay. And I went and like, just adored the time I had there. I mean, I always joke that it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And the big thing, like I didn't know Spanish when I went down there and they have one of the highest levels of bilingualism in the world. So they speak Spanish and they speak Guarani, which is the indigenous language, which is like very different from a Latin language. And so you just go and you're like the village idiot for like two years. You're treated like a toddler. Like, I mean, I went from being, I was the, you know, features editor at a small newspaper, but like I was a competent person and I could communicate so well. Like that was my thing. Words are my thing. And then like all my words were taken. And yeah, I would say that Paraguay is probably like the global middle class. For example, there was the big earthquake in Haiti while I was there and they were like, you know, gathering up funds to like donate to Haiti, right? So not the poorest of the poor, just like, but you do see a lot more suffering than you, and you see people working a lot harder for a lot less payoff. And so most of the, that like I deserve, or this should have worked out in this way, or like poor me, my dad died. So now I get this great career, right? That was drained from me mostly. And of course it's been like more than 10 years now. So it's worn off a little bit. I'm like too much Instagram, not enough, like traveling in the real world. I'm like, where's my infinity pool? But I think the most important thing too, was the relationships. Like to me, Peace Corps is the relationships that I formed while I was there. Like I literally just randomly called up my host mom because I thought of a funny story and I call her and we start laughing like within 10 seconds. And, and, and it's not fair to her for me to say like, when being a freelancer writer is hard, right? So to me, that was the big thing about like, the world doesn't owe you anything. And if your choice is to try to work in this thing that you love very much and a lot of people love and want to work in, like you better get out there and you better work as hard as you possibly can. And 
honor the opportunity you've been given to chase it. Because in a lot of places in the world, I wouldn't be able to. That sounds like a really incredible, incredible two years. Have you gone back to Paraguay? Yes. In 2017, I did three months backpacking in South America from Colombia down to Paraguay. And I didn't tell anyone except my host brother that I was coming. And I just rolled up seven years later and surprised my host mom. And that was, I mean, literally one of the best things I've ever gotten to do. It was so fun. It was so fun. Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I've never done Latin America. I'm really looking forward to that one day. Let's, uh, let's go anytime you want. I need to do the kind of the more Southern countries is a, a dream of mine. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the only place I've been is Mexico, which as, as a European, we think it's Latin America. So tell me about what it's been like for you when you came back after the Peace Corps, re-entering the workforce and, and pursuing your dream as a writer in, in the U.S., So I started from the bottom. I mean, I, it's a long story, but basically I financially screwed myself after Peace Corps. So I literally two days after coming back, which is a kind of a traumatizing time, right? It's just a really hard time for everyone coming back. A lot of people say it's harder to come back than to go. I was in a cubicle as wide as a bathroom stall doing data entry as a temp because I needed to get a job like immediately and just crying all day long. <laughs> and crying and typing out numbers. That was a, a time that I really learned this kind of energy that I call not staying here energy. And so one of the things that I did was I said, okay, what can I use this time for? I mean, literally like wearing my mom's shoes, driving her car to a job, crying all the way there, listening to Florence and the Machine, getting in there, being treated like you, as a temp, you just get treated like dirt, literally getting yelled at. Um, and I was like, wasn't I just on my horse in the fields in Paraguay speaking Guarani, you know, this like your, my social capital had plummeted as well as my real capital. And so I said, I'm going to learn this. I'm going to learn 10 key during this time that little, the numbers pad. I'm like, I'm going to learn how to do that. So every day I just studied that for like five minutes, did a little game online. And then I practiced 10 key. And I was like, this is my little, like I'm moving forward even though I'm on the, I'm like feeling like I'm crawling through mud, I'm going to be moving. Right. So eventually I decided to move to Seattle after living with my mom for about eight months and moved to Seattle, super broke still just really trying to have that, you know, not stay in here energy. It was the whole year was really, really hard. And then from reading all these books on, on finding a job, really just coming into like educating myself and taking responsibility for my own self-improvement and self-development, read all these books, got an interview at a tech company. And because I'd been reading all these books, I knew that they expected me to negotiate. And my friend at the time who worked in healthcare, so never had to negotiate, it was kind of just set, said like, I don't think you should negotiate. Like you really need this job. And I was like, no, like I'm going to do it even though I am desperate and would, I would take half the salary probably. So I negotiate, I asked for 5,000 more and they said, well, what about commission? Because I was writing proposals and that, so they gave me 1% commission and that was a hundred thousand dollar difference over the next three years. Wow. So I knew that I wanted to be a writer. So I used that to, I paid off my student loans and I put as much as I could into my retirement 
Cause I'm like, all right, I know it's going to be a little harder to say for retirement once I'm a writer. And then I left that job in 2015 and was working part-time. We're doing a 20 hour a week job and doing um, some freelance work in 2016 when a story of mine went viral. And that was really where things started to take off for me. And um, I was, I call it setting the table, right? Like getting ready for your success and trusting that it was going to come. So I had, you know, my, my Twitter set up, I had my Facebook as a writer, you know, and my story went all around the world. I just got a Google alert with my name, you know, here we are five years later and it was translated into Indonesian. Wow. It's been so cool (laughs) to see it go all around the world. And, you know, that was a really fun ride that will probably never happen again, but it was, it was cool. And that was kind of like the, what started getting my name out there, which is how I've come to write uh, quite a bit about personal finance and emotions because the story was about women and money. Mm. And so from there, you know, just really, I want to write a novel. I want to still be traveling the world and writing incredible travel stories. I want to make enough money. I'm also, I design courses for writers and I'm trying to do all the things to make sure that I make it without leaning too hard into plan B while keeping plan A front and center but not like requiring that my novel make money for me so I don't strangle the creativity around it or rush it, you know? So am I correct in in saying that you've been, you've been writing over the last few years for a number of really well-known publications. Tell me about what it was like when you saw your name on the New York times, for example, which one was your favorite? What's so funny is that I've never felt as thrilled or excited as when I first saw my name in publication in college. This was like the first time that it wasn't a yearbook. Okay. It was for the material science and engineering newsletter of my university. (laughs) Amazing. So funny. And I happened to be walking by one of my journalism professors and I was like, look, and they were just like, "Uh uh-huh. Like could not have been less impressed. It's so fun. It's exciting. And the thing was though, actually the very first time I was in the New York Times, I happened to be having an anxious day and it didn't make me feel better. And I was like, that was really such a good lesson in mental health and how the external cannot always penetrate the way that you (laughs) feel in your mind, right? And that was before I was doing therapy at that time for my anxiety, but that was before I had started medication, which like so immediately helped. And just two weeks later, I was like, oh, this is what it's like to not wake up with dread. Interesting. That's Mm. nice. So that was really one of the things that helped me decide like, okay, I had been resisting medication for so long. And I was like, I don't want to be a slave to some pill. And then I'm like, actually, like, this is not a big deal. I don't want to be a slave to my anxiety all day long. That was such an important lesson with the first time of seeing it. And I think a lot of times those bylines can be anticlimactic in a good way. It's like when my book was published, it was anticlimactic in a good way because it reminds you that the joy is really in creating the thing, right? I love, love, love interviewing experts. I just got my 10th piece in the New York Times and got to interview these genius architects who are designing houses on cliffs. And it's just so cool. I just, I love learning and you get to learn so much when you do a piece. What's published is probably 5% of what you yourself get to learn about that topic. 
but it is very exciting and it's exciting to share and it's exciting when it happens over and over. You're like, oh, this isn't a fluke. Like I really am a writer. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So tell me the story that went viral. Is that the one called the fuck off fund? Yes. Ah. So I saw that you were nominated for an award. The piece is also anthologized in, I don't know if it's a book called The Future is Feminist. Yes. Alongside works from lots of women that I admire a lot as well. Roxanne Gay, Mindy Kaling, Caitlin Moran. I love her. Yeah, I love her too. Oh my God. So I'd love for you to tell us a bit about that story and why do you think it went viral and, and how did it come to exist? So I love the story of how this piece came to exist because it came out of a really dark time with my writing and shows the importance of something I call fake outs, which are fake stakes around your writing or anything you want to be doing, right? That's not kind of screaming at you to do. So end of 2015, I was having a rough time with my writing. So I said to my friend, like, will you do an accountability measure with me? And so to me, fake outs are anything like hiring a coach, taking a class, signing up for open mic nights, right? It's an answer to the question, what would happen if I didn't write today? You know, once a month, we had a piece. We were like joking when we set up the accountability measure. We're like, am I even a writer anymore? So the calendar invite said in all caps, are you even a writer? (laughs) And that was the day we had to send each other an essay. And so this essay came out of that. And it started as kind of a list of like, these are the kinds of funds you should have, right? You should have like a great opportunity fund when you get an opportunity to go on a trip and you don't, you know, you don't get any notice. So you need the money, blah, blah, blah. And one kind of fund I wanted was called the fuck off fund, which is the amount of money you need to tell someone to fuck off if they deserve one. So this is your boss, your landlord, your parent. Like it's really about having autonomy over your life and not giving anyone else control over you because they control some aspect of your finances, right? So started off as just kind of an explanatory essay. And then through craft and through revision, I came to write it as it would happen if you didn't save a fuck off fund and then got sexually harassed at work and your boyfriend or your boyfriend becomes abusive, but you live with him and you can't afford to get your own place. And the things you start to find yourself excusing because it's easier to excuse than to figure out how you're going to get out of the situation. And then I rewrote the story of what would happen if you did have a fuck off fund. And so it's kind of this like sliding door scenario. And yeah, it was like the day that it, was published. I was at my job in my cubicle. And then around like 10 30 in the morning, Jezebel posted a story about my story. And I just like wheeled my chair over to my friend's cubicle. And I was like, something is happening. And like, and it went, I mean, like Elle magazine said it called it like super viral. It was crazy. It was, um, someone mentioned it in an interview with, um, Oh my gosh, I'm blanking on her name. Elizabeth Warren. You know, it was the craziest thing that happened was that at the uh, Cannes Film Festival, Condé Nast had all these billboards that said like, in the future this, in the future that. And one said, in the future, every woman will have a fuck off fund. You're kidding me. No way. Oh my God, that's amazing. The worst thing was that like, my idea was living this wild life. (laughs) I, (laughs) I was like, the amount, and this is what's crazy about being a writer is like my social capital just like skyrocketed. 
But again, my like real capital, when that Condé Nast billboard came out, I was at the place where, where I did my MFA residencies, which were 10 day residencies. I wasn't attending kind of a long story. I was just there. And I literally brought like groceries to feed myself because I couldn't afford to go out to eat. And I saw that thing and I was just like, I was just exhausted. And I was like, I would like (laughs) some compensation for this idea. Like I would like to receive the amount of like, I would like to be supported for all the value that I've apparently brought to the world. I mean, I probably between the actual piece, I got paid $40 for the original essay and then maybe like for reprints, like a thousand overall total. And I feel very confident saying a million people have read that story on the original website, 750,000. And then it's been reprinted in, you know, the Observer, Times of India, like all around the world. And I was freaking so broke and I was so frustrated. And that was really, I think, such a lesson in like, you have to create your own structures for monetizing your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I work with a couple of, of writers based between the UK and the US. And it's true that actually they're, they're all women. And we've talked about a few months ago, how even when you are within the magazine structure, you're already treated as someone that is expandable. Like there are thousands others who want your job. So you're already oh, totally. badly paid when you're in. And then when you're external, it's, it's even worse. It's even worse. Yeah. And that sense of what are we worth? What is our time mm-hmm. worth? What is our voice mm-hmm. worth? That's something that's um, deeply difficult to, to look at and, and important to discuss. Yeah, I just had a piece in Vox about all the reasons people undercharge, but something great that came out of the Fuck Off Fund is that, you know, I always joked like I was at the base of Literature Mountain, like trying to climb up Literature Mountain, and it just ziplined me to the top of like personal finance media mountain, where, you know, I got to meet a lot of people who are at the forefront of entrepreneurship and personal finance media. And it was so funny. I mean, literally, like I was about to go sit down to brunch with like the Susie Ormans of our time. And I went to the ATM and I had negative $200 in my bank account. <laughs> I was like dying. I'm like, I'm about to go sit next to Aaron Lowry, who does like the broke millennial brand and is very well known. And, you know, maybe she'll invite me on her yacht one day. And I'm like, and I literally have negative $200 in my bank account, but they have taught me so much. So now I'm so all about kind of reporting back to the writer's <laughs> world about here's what they're talking about over <laughs> the people who know about money. Here's what they're saying, dudes. You guys would not believe it. Mm. And the cool thing is that the way that I now make my money, like I think that supporting yourself is a creative act. Like how can I bring value to people? It's not like, how can I scrounge money or what's my scam, right? It's like, how can I pair the value that I bring with the needs that other people have? And when that comes together and people are super happy that you're there offering what you have to offer and you love giving it, it feels as good as getting published in the New York Times. I was just looking through my list of all my coaching clients and like just feeling so much love for each person because I work with each person for, you know, three months and really come to know their story and their work. 
And I've just been so surprised at the quality of work and how they've blown me away and seeing them improve. For example, I was talking to one coaching client and she was doing this dream sequence. And I was like, I just read something that was like an amazing dream sequence. And I wanted to, to show it to her as an example. And it was something one of my other coaching students had written. It wasn't like a published piece. I was just like, what did I just read? That was an incredible example. And it was just, yeah. So like, and just being able to, you know, we in art tend to feel like business is antithetical to art and it's really not. Both of them are finding a new way to create something that other people appreciate. And I always say like, when I support myself, I support the arts. And I wish, you know, especially in the U S that we lived in a, that I lived in a place that was a little bit more supportive of the arts, but I don't, you know, Mm. I hear France is great for that, but I live in the U (laughs) S yeah. Yeah. Part of me thinks it's not just the arts and I'll tell you why I'm coming to the end of my coaching course, my mates who are becoming coaches. I think that a lot of us actually have really great difficulty, not even valuing our time, but even putting the Mm -hmm. offer out there, like even putting Mm -hmm. pen to paper, putting a dollar amount to our time. And I think it's got a lot to do with the way that we're brought up. I think it has to do with our sex it seems that, you know, females, at least in and around me, struggle with this a lot. And we definitely need to read more about what you're telling us about in terms of personal finance and 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 value and, and how not to underprice ourselves because it's definitely a struggle. And I've seen yeah. so many people um, go through the same thing. I yeah. think, you know, I really love offering... I had one friend who was like, well, if I charge a lot, what about people who can't afford it? And I was like, you have you know, tiers of offerings. That's why when we have the meditation and writing sessions for a very important meeting, it's payment optional, right? And that is the thing that I provide to people who literally have no money because so many things have been given to me. You know, I've gotten loans, I've gotten scholarships. So I think we can, we can also have the big ticket items, but also consider part of our mission, helping people who don't have the means for those big ticket items, you know, like anyone can come into a very important meeting and have the attention of April Davila, who's an incredible novelist, you know, Faith Adiele or myself um, or Matthew Perez and say like, if you have any questions about writing, like we're here. Right. And so that's an incredible value that I'm so committed to having be payment optional. And we love the community that supports us when they can, you know, and then people who need to come in with the scholarship. It's so great. And then, you know, other people who can't afford to really go and get the one-on-one and, you know, the people who want that, like I need to be willing to accept that and to let people support me. If I really feel like I am doing all the work to be the kind of artist that can bring value to others. Mm. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Would you like to explain to those who don't know it, what a very important meeting is and how did it actually tell me, how did it come about? How did you meet April? So April Davila and I met at a writer's conference called AWP literally the week before everything shut down. If it had been held a week later, it would have been canceled for sure. And she came by my booth and we hung out for a second. And then through chatting later, we both realized that we had an interest in meditation and writing. And for the first few months of the pandemic, I was in a really, really tough spot. I was having like 
a really hard life situation already. And then the pandemic happened and I was like in rosé chocolate pity party mode for a while. And then I took an online dance class from uh, Sia's choreographer. I was like, all right, let me like try to do something. So, and it was just so, it was like the first time that I felt human during the pandemic and it brought so much value to me. And I said like, what might writers need? And to me, it was, we need to regain our focus to not be doom scrolling, to be able to see and talk to each other, to not feel so isolated and to actually have a time to get our writing done. Because right now it feels like sirens are going off nonstop, which in a lot of places, literally they were. And so April and I started this group and what we do is we come in and then the meeting leader leads a 10 minute mindfulness meditation to help people kind of gather their focus. I end my meditation with a poem or a quote, which I absolutely love. And then we go straight into 45 minutes of focused writing, which when you actually have your focus going is a long time and really helps. I don't know. It's, it's a good chunk. And then afterward, we just kind of go around and see how everyone's work went that day and talk about writing for about 15 minutes. And it's just kind of my daily making sure I get my writing done thing. So you were doing this for yourself and you're doing it for others and it totally works. <laughs> oh, how, did yeah. you, how did you connect meditation with writing? I think they both are around focus and kind of a thing that you want to make sure that you get done in a day, but also it's really hard to skip and feel like something else is more important, which is why we named it a very important meeting. And I knew when, when we agreed on that name, I was like, oh, April's going to be an amazing partner. And she totally is. Oh, we have so the same vibe, you know? So it says right on your calendar, a very important meeting. And I want to talk about what you said about it's for me and it's for other people. So I think, you know, when I was in Peace Corps, they, people are just like, you're a saint and you're just giving to other people where, you know, people who really were like that were pretty disappointed because sometimes people are just like, no, thanks. You talk funny and you look weird and we don't trust you and we don't want your help. And then when I was in business, people assume like, you're always, you know, like trying to eat the other person's lunch and blah, 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 you know, it's all for you, all for you. And I have found really that the, the best place is in that middle place, apart from you know, the 10% that I feel that I should be donating. I'm not at 10% yet, but I do. That's my goal, right? To get to 10% donations of time and money. And I find that apart from that, a half for me, half for you feels like this kind of cosmic balance of your effort, right? And not like a, a tit for tat, but it's like, we both get something out of this. And it, it's almost like two sides of a, of a, of a lean to that lean on each other. Right. And it's, and it's equal. And it, there's a beauty in that where yes, I come and I get my like little $20 an hour and I get my writing done and I get this incredible community and other people get this incredible community and they get their writing done. And we've just created something beautiful. Right. And it's not like, I mean, so many people, I just got done reading two Michael Moss books about the industrialized food industry and just realizing the level to which most business doesn't care about the people that they serve. It's really nice to create business and a profession for yourself that 
that is that kind of like half for me, half for you. Mm, the middle way. The middle way. Mm. Yes. And not being a martyr, you know, not being a martyr, but also not taking advantage of people. Yeah. So skipping to something else, I was, I was reading through several of your articles and, and prose and medium. So you had me laugh out loud a bunch of times. So thanks. <laughs> it was great doing research. I appreciate. <laughs> I would love to know how did you develop your, your writing voice? You develop your writing voice when you realize how many other people you're trying to sound like and stop it. <laughs> okay. Who did you want to sound like? Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. Serious, serious personal essayist person. Literature. You know, uh-huh. I needed a British accent. One of the things that freed me from that was Chuck Klosterman in one of his books, I was reading it and in the next, he goes on some tangent and then the next paragraph he writes in all caps anyway. And I was like, wait a minute. I'm like, you're allowed to write in all caps and say anyway and make a joke. I'm like, this is how, this is how I write to my friends in emails. Right. So I knew I was finding my voice when my friends would say things like, oh my God, I could totally hear you saying that. Right. And when you're kind of like making yourself laugh and you're like, this pleases me. And I mean, I sometimes just make myself just cackle in my office and I love it because you never know Mm. if anything is ever going to come of this writing. So Mm -hmm. you might as well entertain yourself. And when you feel that your own gaze is most important, then I think you start to find your voice, but it takes a really long time, like years and years. And you're kind of like digging for it and just saying like, what is more me? What is more real? Yeah. Now I'd like to know when did you write your biography? The one that's currently on your website. People love that. And I love it. I love, I love being, you know, uh, I love being the writer that is totally just like, hey, here's what it's really like. Because it's such a disservice that we do to writers. So basically, if people don't know, I have my writer's bio, like Paulette Perhaps is a writer, blah, 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 blah. And then I have a section called Rejections, Humiliations, and Failures. And then it's it's written in the style of an author's bio, but it's just describing all of my failures and rejections. Which is hilarious. <laughs> because... You know, because I think a lot of my style about how I help other writers comes from the fact that I moved to Seattle and I happen to move six blocks from a writing center called Hugo House, which just luck of the draw uh, is one of the best writing centers in the country. And I got to hang out there and take classes and meet writers. And then you see nobody is as hot as they look in their author's photo or composed or happy everyone's freaking out and anxious and scared and feels like an idiot. And the author's bio is this absolutely like, you know, the Instagram of text describing your life with a complete filter of success on top of everything else. And so I think the service that I provide to new writers is just being very honest about all the rejection that I've been through. And so I post all my rejections on Instagram and uh, I just posted a, a correction I had to have done on Instagram, which gutted me. Oh. 
And, you know, and so that they don't say like, wow, I'm not a genius or I'm not a prodigy that, that the failures are as much a part of the successes. So like get used to it because it just keeps happening. Now, the last part, the dream obit. <laughs> How'd you say that? Or obituary? Obit. Yes, yeah, my dream obit. Uh-huh. How did that come about? That's like the newest part. And I actually need to work more on that, I think. I mean, I, I think it it's pretty funny. funny. And I'm even going to ask you if you could read it to our listeners, because I feel like it's so entertaining that why not? <laughs> I think it's really great to have something to look forward to that's different. And I don't think my voice is the right voice. I think it should be your voice. <laughs> so um, I think I actually posted this when my friend Stephanie O'Connell wrote on Twitter that like ambition is vulnerable. And so to really say like, no, this is what I really want. Um, although part of this is just obviously joking, which is fairly obvious which parts, but it's like, no, I really want to be in the best. I want to be an incredible writer. Like I want to be, I want to be doing work that is in the best publications in the world. Like what? Like, who do you think you are? Right. So I don't know. Okay. So here's my dream obit. Paulette Perhatch, age 100, spontaneously combusted while on horse safari in Zimbabwe. No horses were injured. Known as the Beyonce of the writing world, Perhatch was the author of at least two New York Times bestselling novels, which would be so cool if Tin House had published. She also wrote three books on writing, covering the life, the business, and the spiritual path of writers. Her work has been featured in The New Yorker, McSweeney's, Granta, and all the other cool places, and the best American writing about feelings. She was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Outstanding Achievement in the Listicle. Perhatch co-founded Art Church, a weekly spiritual gathering for artists. She hosted an annual writer's retreat that moved locations each year, bringing writers to Brazil, Patagonia, Banff, and Colombia. The pieces of her body will be battered and deep fried and fed to sea creatures off the coast of Florida. She is survived by her many nieces and nephews of siblings and friends, as well as her best friend, Ira Glass. <sighs> There's so many things I loved about that, especially the last few words. <laughs> so you will be best friends then. That's wonderful. Yes, we will. I had mentioned in the rejections how I didn't get this American Life internship, but I did pay to meet Ira Glass like a creep. Mm, that's pretty fun. It's the only meet and greet I've ever paid for. I was like, I don't care. I will. Yes. I don't care. <laughs> like that's an option. Yes, let's do it. And I called my friend. I was like, do you want to do this? She was like, yes. Great. That's amazing. So I'd love for you to tell us the story about how you decided to write a book and how this particular book came, came along for you. Yeah. So I have been doing courses for writers. Um, I didn't have, let's say I didn't have any credentials to really rest upon just the fact that I was in, I was in it. I was trying to be a writer. I had been published in salon at that point and I was really in it. And I was like, okay, here's how you start. Here's how you really make the shift and start to take it seriously. And after Fuck Off Fun came out, a local publisher called Sasquatch contacted me and said, hey, do you have any ideas for, for books? And so I gave them my course that I'd written and they really liked it. And they wanted me to add on top of it kind of a memoir about being a writer. So it's about 50,000 words of instruction with 20,000 words of kind of memoir about being a writer. And so, oh man, I worked on that during 2018 and that was 
I have never worked so hard for so little payoff in my life. And I lived in a 150 square foot apartment in Seattle and worked from 8 a.m. till 8 p.m. And I remember when my book launch was coming out, someone wanted to go on a date with me. And I was just like, well, I have to go like scope out my book launch venue. And there's a bar there. So if you want to do that, like you can tag along on an errand that I have to sexy. If you wanted to see me. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was super tough. It was really cool. In, um, I finished one of the drafts on my trip in 2017 in Colombia. I uh, just stayed in one place in Colombia and I had to rewrite three sections a day. I was copying from the old draft to the new draft by hand. Like I didn't just edit it. I was like, I'm going to make myself copy it over. Cause if there's something that makes you not want to copy over a sentence, it's the fact that you have to type out 70,000 words. So you're like, that's not pregnant. That's not kind of like skip, skip. <laughs> and so, yeah. And then we had the, you know, the book launch in Seattle and it was fabulous. It was like my artistic wedding. I felt like <laughs> and yeah, and it's been, you know, it's been a really wonderful ride and it got selected as one of Poets and Writers Best Books for Writers. And that was the day that I was like, okay, I did enough. Like I'm not a, you know, I'm not a hack. <laughs> and I describe it as freshman orientation for new writers. You know, it's called Welcome to the Writer's Life and it is like the welcome mat. Like, here's where we do this. Here's this. You're going to want to know about this and this person and this publication. and. <laughs> Onward you go and you got to worry about making money and you got to worry about getting all your writing done. And here's what you have to read and how you have to read. And here are the things writers like to argue about. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. MFA versus no MFA. Um, and yeah, and it's, it's been received really well. I've been really happy with like the Amazon reviews, got four stars, more than four stars with a hundred, more than hundred reviews. So feel great about that. And I still keep my blog at welcometothewriterslife.com, which is kind of continuing the conversation. Mm, That's awesome. So I wanted to ask you about the rest of the courses that you are now offering, because you have a panel of things. And there was Mm -hmm. one with a really intense and interesting name, (laughs) which had the word deluxe in it. Do you want to tell (laughs) me about what are the different resources that you currently have for people out there who actually need um, your help. Yes. So I have a self-run course called Going Pro for people who want to become freelance writers. I have a coaching group and one-on-one option called Powerhouse Writers, which is really for people who are like, I want to be my own badass and I want to really make this life work. And what are the things that are going to power my work and really get me the life that I truly want And then the Writer's Machine Control Center Deluxe is a piece of software that I'm designing for writers. Right now, it is a Google add-on that runs a Google Sheet that helps people track everything about their writing lives so they can stay organized and get to the fun part. And that's been really fun. Yeah. That's so cool. When is that? Is that live already? It's live now. And it's so... It's just... I have such big dreams for it. And I have a fantastic developer and really love... It's just a fun creative project to be like, okay, how can we handle this? And how can we, you know, uh, you know, just how can you manage all your contacts? And when I make a mistake or something feels disorganized to me, I can be like, okay, how can I fix this in the writer's mission control center? And mm. it's, it's really exciting. And I think it's going to help a lot of people to have more organized and profitable freelance writing lives. Okay. I'm looking forward to, to testing it out. 
<laughs> yeah. So I'm teaching a class called You've Got to Get Your Writing Life Organized. It's like a, just a two-hour class where you get the sheet um, for free with the class. And we talk about all the different aspects of organization. And so, yeah, so those are kind of all my live events and everything. But yeah, it's a lot, right? <laughs> it sounds like a lot, but it also sounds wonderful because it it feels like it's segmented at different levels for people who have different mm-hmm. objectives. So totally. um, I will make sure to have every single one of them in the, in the show notes as well. Thank you. Um, what advice do you have for aspiring writers out there, whatever their age? Run. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that the biggest thing is that you get better at the thing by doing the thing. And that's true for anything. And so be careful what you're good at. You know, sometimes I realize that I am really good at watching TV. Like I got my, (laughs) I got the remote down. I got my, I'm like pressing those buttons, like someone, you know, like live streaming their Grand Theft Auto game. And I'm like, wow, I'm really good at watching TV. Like, let me rethink my life. I'm really good at Twitter. I'm really good at other things. And so just being careful about that and that, And knowing that the number one thing that writing requires is your time. And so you have to get very intentional about your time. And a worried parent might say, you'll never make any money. And what I would say is you have to become very intentional about how you make the most per hour so that you can buy other hours for your creative writing. And there's a lot of opportunity out there to be really creative about how you make money. I think especially in the tech world, it's like, do we really need 23-year-olds making $125,000 a year? Or do we need more 20-hour-a-week jobs where 23-year-olds can make $50,000 a year and also be, you know, jazz musicians and travelers and poets? I think we're all questioning and re-examining our lives and saying, who decided we work 40 hours a week? When did that happen? Or wait, am I made of trillions of atoms and in a universe that I can't even comprehend and circling the sun and my job is to pay bills until I'm 65 and then sit around and watch TV? Like, hmm. Yeah. It doesn't really make sense to me. So just becoming, becoming very intentional about how you live your life. There, like my, uh, one of my main phrases to myself is there's no time for bullshit. And that doesn't mean that I don't have any bullshit in my life. I wish I had less bullshit. Um, but, um, you just have to get super intentional and you don't have to take the life that is kind of just handed to you. It's interesting to hear you speak about this, this possibility, you know, this, this different kind of life where, you know, you work less, but you get to you get to pursue passion. You get to do something creative. You get to enrich your life and, and other people's lives. I'm interested in, in hearing from you. How were you supported as you were growing up with your with your dream of being a writer? I think that is where I won the the parent lottery. I mean, I actually my book is dedicated to my mom, uh, who always said, "Just follow your heart." And she really, I mean, that is where she gets the the number one A plus um, of momhood. (laughs) You know, she really just always said, like, follow your heart, honey. And so that was great. And that's, you know, not everyone gets that for sure. So some people have to have to find that. And it's great to find that kind of support and community online and join writers groups. And, you know, I've seen posts where people say, you know, my parents say X, Y, Z. And 
and it's got to be really hard to to mm. go against what your parents think. Actually, one time I went to this, what do they call it? A uh, craft school for two weeks called Penland. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, I was there making glass beads. And while I was there, I met someone who quit medical school to major in clay. Awesome. And I was like, wow, that's a conversation. <laughs> and the great thing about being a writer is that you, you know, when you're in clay, you can't really do corporate clay. I mean, I imagine you can <laughs> in some ways, but like with writing, uh, you know, I'm writing a website for a very huge scientific project that's extremely boring and, you know, getting $100 an hour to do that. And that buys me my two hours in the morning to open up my novel and Scrivener and stare at it and say, huh, okay, what's <laughs> going on here? Huh, let me try to hopefully make this into something at some point. So we can do the kind of corporate writing. But if you're like me and you have no, you like feel claustrophobic in a day job and you want to make your own way by creating value for people who have money and can afford to pay you, you just have to consider yourself a business person and Mm -hmm. learn everything that a small business owner would be learning, right? Bookkeeping, accounting, you know, I now am able to outsource a lot of that, which is fantastic. (laughs) But, you know, you have to be marketing, you have to be networking. Networking's huge. So um, just like be ready to own it, to be like, I want to be a writer and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make that happen, including QuickBooks. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be thankful for all the tools we have now. My God, like it's a lot easier than it used to be. You can Google anything. I appreciate that. So what's next for this writer's life? This writer's life, I am going to really start to scale my courses and fulfill the promise to myself that they are going to be the thing that buys me more time. And my coaching, I have been working with a fantastic assistant now for a year and I'm really handing more off to her. And I'm going to be doubling down on writing the kind of writing I really want to be writing. I feel a little bit like my essay side of my life hasn't been getting as much love. I keep being like, oh yeah, there was this essay I wanted to write. There was this essay I wanted to write. And I'm looking at my 40th birthday next year. And so really getting just more intentional and being like, okay, like halftime, right? Halftime break, halftime pep talk. (laughs) And instead of being like, wow, I haven't become the writer I wanted to become one side, which is tempting to look at. It's wow, let's look at the foundation I've built and really kick it into high gear. And how can I build on what I have so far? And I think I have such an incredible foundation to really move into the kind of writing I want to be doing. And I think it's great to be doing that at 40. Like, I don't thank God I wasn't a very successful essayist when I was like in my twenties. Are you kidding me? What did I have to say? Nothing. Mm -hmm. So I think now I have a little bit more of something to say and hopefully the ability to bring value to people who read it. Mm. Yeah, you're right in terms of the age. I mean, I I don't know whether you've ever heard of Bernadette Giwa. She has written a bunch of books. She runs also a course with um, Seth Godin and Akimbo called the Story mm. Skills Workshop. Mm. And she only started writing in, in her early 40s or at 40, I'm not sure. Yes. And uh, her stories. books are wonderful and so useful 
I mean, mm. I actually just bought, I think, six or seven copies to gift at Christmas. So wow. <laughs> I'm getting this in early. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that we haven't covered before I move on to sort of my quick fire round questions? I think the importance and the joy of the social aspect of being a writer. I just had one of the hardest weeks of the year. If I hadn't had an extremely terrible week about (laughs) four months ago, it would have been the hardest week of the year. And the way that my community just swooped in around me and supported me was incredible. And the joy that I get from the writing community, which you can get online now, it's just so fun. And I really, I've always kind of struggled with being such a social person, but also being a writer. When I was little with those two best friends, I invited them over to climb trees and read because like, that's what I did. And like, I wanted to do that just together. So that's like my entire personality is I like to be really social, but I also like to read and write. And I was like, I should just be in a cabin in the woods, blah, blah, blah. But I think really digging into, to making friendships in this world. And like, it's not like networking with, you know, not to pick on accountants or anything, but like, I don't know if I'd want to be at a party with a bunch of accountants. We get to hang out with writers. I have never met a boring writer or like one boring writer, but mostly (laughs) writers are like super fun and funny and interesting. And I love the whole world of it, you know? And then the more people, you know, the more they will help spread the word. Like we all just support each other. I think the community around me and the people I know has been as much of a joy as creating my work Mm. and, and working with clients, you know, and then clients become friends and, now I just hired someone who just hired me to do their coaching. I just hired her to do my branding. And it's like this, you know, we don't have coworkers. We have colleagues who, you know, are doing this work with us. And so I think really being intentional about that has brought me so much joy and so much work as well. So, so really not shying away from that and considering socializing with other writers, part of your work. Mm, that's a beautiful, Hopefully. beautiful idea. Um, yeah, absolutely. Embrace the industry that you're in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. So I'd love to ask you about meditation. So Out of the Clouds is a podcast which, like me, sits at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. So how did mm. you get into meditation? Anxiety. Mm. <laughs> I think just trying to say like, what can I do to help with this brain that is all over the place? And I feel like, I feel like meditation is this way that helps me observe it without tumbling into it. Not always, but sometimes. And really, I mean, there's just so many benefits to, to meditation in business and in writing. I mean, when I had that really bad week last week, I was able to be like, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm not always able to choose my attitude. You know, like I'll walk past someone who has a shirt on that says like, choose happiness. And I was like, I'm trying. (laughs) It's not always easy. It's not always possible. Right. But I find more and more that like I say, I can choose my attitude about my attitude where I say, I say, well, I have a really crappy attitude today. Or, oh my gosh, I feel super defeated today. And I'm going to let that sit, right? Wow. I'm really having a hard time choosing happiness today. And if I could choose happiness, I would. Today, we're going to go with acceptance. I accept that this is hard. I accept that I feel 
down. And so there's just a layer of space between myself and my reaction to the world in which I can serve what I actually need more than just reacting. Like if I feel defeated, I can do something like I'm going to let myself go out to lunch with a friend today instead of just sitting around in the story to be like, what do I need right now? What do I need to get back in that space? And just really strengthening the other side of the, of the equation of the person inside this mind experiencing it. Yeah. What I'm hearing you say as well is, is, is being able to get distance with whatever you're feeling because you're Mm -hmm. observing rather than identifying. So you recognize the existence of the state. You may feel it, but you can get a little bit of um, breather. From it. And I think that I'm especially watching Succession, which like, so the characters are about the opposite of a, you know, of a monk. It helps me as well as, as a leader, having a team to deal. And I would feel the same way, maybe if it were like a mom dealing with your children, right? Where it's like, my immediate reaction is like anger with like, let's say like there's a mistake or something, you know, like. I did have one meeting that was like the most enraging meeting and I like stayed calm. And my assistant was like, I can't believe you just stayed calm through that whole thing. That was like the craziest thing ever. And I was like, meditation, meditation. And actually I wanted to make a mug that says you're lucky I meditate. Cause that's, <laughs> ah, that's a great to- idea. I have that on your website. I know we want to make a very important meeting swag. So I gotta, I gotta get on that. So yeah, just the, the beat, right. Of a feeling arises and you can pause which Tara Brock talks about the, like, I think she calls it the sacred pause and, and not, and decide how you're going to react rather than just like reacting and then regretting. Right. Mm, Yeah. It's that little space in which you feel the agency to decide how to react to anger, to disappointment you know, I mean, life has been really, really hard for about the last two years. And it's, you know, I've had ups and downs within this pandemic. But trying to stay on like a level plane, I think it, I think it tapers out. Like the lows aren't quite as low. That's what I found. Yeah. I learned in, in the course that I did with April called MMTCP. It's a mouthful. One of the things that I found out about, which was a bit of a shocker, is that we have, we're built in with a negativity bias, human beings, mm-hmm. we are. Yeah. And so anything that we do towards like meditation, whether it's mindfulness or other kinds or loving kindness really helps us actually become more even. So we don't just see things negatively. Anyways, that's a bit of a shocker. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for sharing that. So I would love to hear of an act of kindness that has touched your life? This is one of my favorite stories from Paraguay. I was being like kind of sexually harassed and robbed at the same time. (laughs) I was sitting on a park bench waiting for the bus and this guy was talking to me and like asking for my phone number. And his son was like standing behind me. He was young, 10 years old. And they kind of gave each other, or he gave him like kind of a knowing glance. And I was wearing my big backpack. And I was like, is this kid rifling through my backpack right now? And the bus came and I got on the bus and all the outside zippers on my backpack were open. 
And I was savvy enough at that time to not have anything in the outside pockets, but I was so down and I was going to a certain place and my, my Spanish was not very good. And so riding the bus was like really scary to me. Was I going to fall asleep? Was I going to get lost? I have a terrible sense of direction. So I told the bus driver where I needed to go and like, didn't really understand his response. And then I went and I sat all the way in the back of the bus and I was sitting there kind of down, just feeling like alone and vulnerable. And then I think I kind of fell asleep and I woke up and I kept hearing Rubia, Rubia, which means blonde, which was like basically my name in Paraguay. And I look and literally like every single person in the bus is turned around pointing like, this is your stop. This is your stop. Like everyone in that bus was making sure that like I was getting off at the right spot and they were all like taking care of me. And it was just so cute. And I arrived where I was going, like in this really great mood and, um, and really touched by that, you know, it was just, it was just adorable. And that was like the majority of my experience in Paraguay, where in a place, any place where you don't really speak the language, you know, which I didn't initially and how many people made sure that I was okay, that saw that vulnerability and made sure that I was okay. That's lovely. Now, possibly a hard question for you. <laughs> what is your favorite word? <sighs> ah, I just need to add, uh, for context, that you would tattoo on yourself. That I would tattoo At least on for, myself? Oh my yeah, that you would like carry on your skin for a while. Yeah. So I I actually, in the writer's mission control center, I have like a place to put your favorite words. And I think let's is one of my favorite words. Like let's, that spirit of, it's an idea of something we should do. Let's do this. It has a level of excitement. And I feel like there's like some kind of play on that with my name, Paulette, Paulette. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I uh, just yesterday had like an hour with someone and there's a this beautiful garden that I haven't gone to enough that is just four minutes from my house, like four minute drive. And we only had an hour and I'm like, let's go to the garden. And we were like, do we have time? And I'm like, yeah, like, okay, make a coffee. Let's take a coffee to go. And, and we went and walked around and had a beautiful time. And I was like, wow, the difference between an hour walking around in a garden and an hour watching like mindless TV, the depth of that is so different. So kind of like, let's do those things that feel like life. Mm. I really, I, I love the energy that is contained within it. Yeah, that or kerfuffle. <laughs> For non-English, non-fluent English speakers, can you please explain what kerfuffle is? Kerfuffle, which I am Googling here, is a commotion or fuss, especially one caused by conflicting views. Well, that's not a very good definition. I just like the way kerfuffle sounds. I agree. It sounds really like funny. a kind of waffle. Like, can I have the kerfuffle? <laughs> You're right. It would be a much better dish than it is a commotion. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Kerfuffle. But I find myself kind of more and more being like stopping with words and being like, ooh, that's a good word. I feel it makes me feel like a poet. And that's kind of developed maybe after reading Mary, Mary Oliver's book on poetry and realizing like how important the sounds of words is. Mm. Now, what song best represents you? That's a really hard one. But uh, when the the first thing that comes to mind is uh, Holocene by Bon Iver, which is like just the most beautiful song. And it makes me want to write something that beautiful. And I feel like that, it feels like the thing I'm seeking. 
or yeah, kind of the ultimate state of like, this is the kind of life I want to have, or maybe it's the opposite of me because <laughs> it's very calm and soothing. And so that's why I love it so much. So, but I just love it. What would you say to your younger self if you could send yourself a message? I love you. That's wonderful. What is the best advice you've ever been given? Someone who said to me when I had a really hard time breaking off a situation, she said, it just sounds like you don't want to. And paying attention to all the reasons that we keep doing things, even when we just really don't want to, all the excuses we give ourselves. And just, yeah, she was probably the oldest person I just consider just like my good friend. She's in her 60s and so has this great ability to just be like, here's what the reality of that situation is. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering whether you would choose the one that's behind your head that I can see on our Zoom screen. I really like that. Well-behaved women rarely make history. Yeah. Um, I love the, the quote too, like, go confidently in the direction of your dreams, live the life you imagined. That's just a classic. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now, what books are next to your bed or on your desk? So I have, I'm trying to only keep three books on my nightstand and be like, these are the three books I'm reading. Um, because I have with my, you know, ADHD brain, I will start a million books and not finish them. So the ones that I have now are coming soon here because I took a picture of them so I could get them right. (laughs) It is, uh, one is a small little book called On Bullshit by Harry G. Frankfurt. Mm. Another is uh, The Body, A Guide for Occupants by Bill Bryson. And then I had uh, Matrix by Lauren Groff, which I finished, but it's still there. And it's just like, it like made me feel like we need to protect Lauren Groff at all costs. Like she's a national treasure. Oh, I'm not familiar with her. So I will definitely go check her out. Yeah. Who is one person you think we should all know about? So it could be a politician, a writer, a musician, an artist, anyone. George Saunders. It's like probably a lot of people know about him, but he's just the best. Would you tell, for those who don't know about him, would you tell them a little bit about who he is and and what he does? He is this writer. Well, his book came out on January 6th, I think one year. And the New York Times said, George Saunders wrote the best book you'll read all year. And I was like, damn, that's like goals I didn't even know I could aspire to. Like the New York Times like called it for his book. What? And his writing is just so joyful and funny, but serious. He has this spirit of really like connecting with humanity. He also has a great writing book and it's called A Swim in the Pond in the Rain, I believe. Okay. Yeah. I've heard about that. But just the way he talks is like, so without artifice, it's just... It feels very natural and 
he's like your kind neighbor. And it was so funny. I had written in my book, a little bit of a guide to meeting famous writers. If you ever get to meet famous writers and like, kind of like having a plan. And I was like, don't just run up to someone and be like, I love you. Like, when is that? When is a stranger running up and yelling? I love you ever turned out well. And then, uh, I saw George Saunders on a plane and what do I do? I love you. I was like, damn it. He was very kind about it. I did not call security. And then I actually, I had quoted something that he said in my book, but I wasn't able to find the recording. And so then after we got off the plane while his wife was in the bathroom, I was able to corner him and like confirm this quote for my book. And then he was on my flight coming back a week later, which was so funny. Felt like a nod from the universe. Definitely. That sounds like a good sign. Yeah, but he's a very sweet person. And the last question that I um, like to ask all of my guests is what brings you happiness? Singing as loud as I can, um, beautiful music, cooking, seeing new things, lava, crocheting and making things, making jewelry, my friend's children, and just like those moments that feel like you don't want to be anywhere else. Like this is what life is actually about, which I am looking forward to getting more of as hopefully the pandemic wanes and beautiful, beautiful writing and feeling like some writing that came out of me was beautiful. Thank you so much. Paulette, it was such a pleasure. I really appreciate you making the time and indulging me in all my questions. (laughs) Could you kindly tell people where they can find you and maybe contact you if they're interested in, in pursuing any of your courses or asking for advice possibly. Sure. So you can follow me on Twitter at Paulette Perhatch. Instagram is Paulette J Perhatch. And I blog at Welcome to the Writer's Life. And you can contact me at pauletteperhatch.com. Awesome. And I will also put the details for a very important meeting so people are able to pop in and come meditate and write if they so desire. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thanks again for your time. I am really looking forward to seeing you soon at one of the meetings and I um, wish you a wonderful, wonderful week. Thanks again to Paulette for joining me on the show today. So you can find her online first at paulettepahatch.com, but she's also on Twitter at paulettepahatch and on Instagram at Paulette J. Bahatch. Details for LinkedIn and her blog, Welcome to the Writer's Life, are also all linked in the show notes. So friends and listeners, thank you again for joining me today. And I hope that you've enjoyed our conversation. If you'd like to hear more, you can go to your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. You can also leave a review. It's always lovely to hear from you. If you'd like to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anvi on Twitter or on LinkedIn, Anvi Lutaler, or on Instagram at underscore out of the clouds, where I also share some guided meditations and daily musings about mindfulness. The website is finally live. You can find me at anvimulatala.com. And if you don't know how to spell it, you can either find that in the show notes or go to outoftheclouds.com. That'll get you there too. And you can sign up for email updates, whether you're interested in more podcasts 
writing, or other things, mindfulness. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Out of the Clouds. I hope that you will join me again next time. And until then, be well, be safe, and take care.